This is the MLW Radio Network. Everybody, welcome to Overbooked with Mike Freeland. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Mike Freeland here from Front Row Material with a new episode of Overbooked. As you know, we have been chronicling the stories that are inside the unauthorized story of ECW. We last left off on Chapter 5 uh, when we were talking about Eddie Guerrero, we were talking about Art Barr, um, we were talking about. Um, the incidents with WCW as far as when worlds collide, the lawsuit slash talent share, talent trade, whatever you want to refer to it as, that was uh, Chapter 5. Chapter 6 is going into the character of Raven. Raven has always been a character that I've been really interested in. He's been somebody who I think was true to himself and somebody who, in his own words, was one of the last few people to go through the territories. He spent some extensive time in WWE, WCW, ECW, and then subsequently in TNA slash Impact Wrestling. He has his own podcast. He's a very fascinating personality, and I would recommend definitely following him. At the very least, if you have the abilities to have the network, I think you should definitely check out some of the stuff he did in ECW. It's going to make a lot more sense when you follow along in this chapter. So the chapter actually starts out with a quote from Raven, and it says, The pain and suffering of a childhood lost, an empty swing, an empty promise, a broken dream, a broken home. It's strange how laughter looks like crying with no sound, and raindrops taste like tears without the pain. Tommy Dreamer, you will relive the turmoil and anguish of an uncertain youth. And that was a comment Raven had made on ECW television in January of 95. So we had mentioned in previous chapters how Paul was always trying to keep ECW fresh. He had projects that he was working on, obviously, with the public enemy. We talked about how those guys were on the independent scenes. Paul brought them together, gave them the public enemy image they got over. He then worked on Tommy Dreamer, he got him over, worked on Mikey Whipwreck, got him over. So it was interesting how Paul, in some ways, I believe in wrestling, is given a lot of credit for what he has done. And I think in some ways, Paul is underappreciated for the contributions that he's made. I say that because it's in my opinion that a lot of people give Paul a hard time for the lying to the locker room that he did, allegedly, frequently, to the different stars in ECW as far as pay and travel arrangements and whatnot. But the one thing Paul did definitely do well is he was always honest and sincere when it came to the audience. He never ripped them off. He never lied to them. And even the, the ECW roster will say he may have lied to our faces, but he never lied to the audience. And Paul was definitely loyal to the rabid fan base that was ECW. So starting in 1995, ECW was drawing uh, about the same crowds. Things had kind of cooled off a little bit. 
And when we say drawing the same kind of crowds, we're talking maybe 800 to 1,200 people, sometimes a little bit more, sometimes a little bit less. It just all kind of depends on you know, where they were. But the fans in ECW were still incredibly dedicated and incredibly loyal. So Paul had a belief that when 1995 rolled around that, you know what, the days of the baby faces and the heels were gone. At least it was going to be gone in his company. He didn't necessarily believe that there was this black and white. There was this line drawn in the sand where you're either a good guy or a bad guy. Paul was one of the first people in that era to believe in shades of gray. And that, you know, somebody could be a good guy, but they could have bad guy tendencies. And you could be a bad guy, but you could have some good guy tendencies. So it was interesting because Paul felt that that was a way to make the superstars even more appealing and attractive to the audience because it kept things pretty interesting. Nobody ever got too comfortable with one specific performer because you never knew exactly what was going to happen. So as we're going around in 1995, and, and I'm skipping around here in this chapter, so if you want to read verbatim everything, definitely jump in here and you can read that. So like I said, we're going to focus a lot of time on Raven this chapter. So Raven's real name is Scott Levy, and he was a big-time wrestling fan. Um, he first started out as the obnoxious Scotty the Body when he was in Don Owen's Portland, Oregon Territory back in 1989. And then after he spent some time there, he, in 1992, jumped over to WCW, and he became Scotty Flamingo. But he wasn't there for very long. Obviously, you know, anytime you bring up the name of Bill Watts, Bill Watts kind of leaves a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths, and he decided to uh, part ways with WCW at that time. We can go into relationships with Bill Watts a, a little bit later here. So he left after spending about a year in WCW. He went to the WWF. Well, at this time when Scotty went to the WWF, he was led to believe, based upon his interview, that he was going to be a manager, but also a manager who wrestles. So he was he was cool with that. Um, that didn't exactly come to fruition. He was more seen as just a manager, but he grit his teeth and he kind of stuck with it and he actually became one of the company's big biggest heels when it came to managers well the conversations that he would have backstage and with some of the other talent definitely caught the eye of Vince McMahon and they decided to use his talents and his creative mind to become an associate producer in the WWF they had him work on Monday Night Raw and he also was working on their other uh, B and C level shows that would air on TV as well. And Scotty would go on to say, he goes, those second run shows took basically no time, no real work to put in together. He said, it took me about 16 hours a week to do 60 to 70 hours of programming work. He says, I used to get up, call the studio, tell them in the office, then I'd call the office, tell them I'm in the studio, and then I'd go back to bed. Scotty didn't mind doing this, but at the end of the day, he got really bored, and he's a very creative person, so he actually spent most of his time in Stanford, Connecticut when he moved up there watching a lot of WWF matches in their library that they had, and he was a really a student of the game, so he would say that was actually the most appealing aspect of his job. Now, depending on who you talk to and what you read, uh, this job, he was getting about $100,000 a year, which in 1995, that's a, that's a good chunk of change. 
However, you're living up in Stanford, Connecticut. Keep that in mind. And cost of living is going to be higher. But you know, he found success and he was he was enjoying it. But then at the same breath, he was kind of stifled in the same way. Because he was only about 225, 230 pounds at the time when he talked to WWE Brass, they told him that he was he wasn't big enough. They were always looking for somebody who was about 270 or bigger. So it kind of upset Scotty, and he realized at this point in time, hey, I'm doing the manager gig, I'm doing the producer thing. Yeah, it's cool, and I am working for the WWF, but in the same breath, it's it's just not really what I want. But before he left, I mean, he did do a lot of great things. Like I said, he was a producer on Monday Night Raw. He worked on a lot of their B-level shows. He got to host All-American Wrestling he got to work with Gorilla Monsoon. So there's a lot of things that he looks back on as far as his time in the WWF, and he was very, very happy with it. But at the end of the day, he was like, I just, I can't. I can't do this. You know, I've been in the business. At this point in time, I would say he was in the business about seven or eight years now, and he said, this is either a make it or break it for me. Like, I'm not getting any younger. I want to get this thing going. So he came up with a character and he started thinking, man, I can't really do this Scotty Flamingo thing anymore. You know, Johnny Polo, not not the thing. I want to come up with something. So he started coming up with a character, and he called one of his friends, Diamond Dallas Page. And he said, hey, listen, Diamond, I got an idea for a character. And Diamond said, hey, whatever you do, you can't do the whole chicken shit heel type of character anymore. He said, you really, meaning Diamond, need to become a badass. Raven, Scotty, uh, really wasn't too hot about the idea of becoming some tough guy or badass because at that time, everybody wanted to be the badass. Everybody wanted to be the tough guy. Everybody wanted to be the guy that everybody popped for when they came out. He wanted to go in the opposite direction. He definitely wanted to still be a heel. So Scotty says he remembers watching Patrick Swayze's movie, uh, point Break, and he kind of started basing this new character named Raven off of that, and he started kind of really going into the psychological aspects of, of who Raven was and what brought Raven to where he is now, but he knew that he was going to have to get on TV somehow. He knew that, obviously, pitching this idea to WWF was not going to work, WWF at that time, and... I don't know if I would say even to today to some degree, maybe a little bit, but if they didn't create the character or if it wasn't their concept or their idea, uh, they really wouldn't go with it because it was something that they wanted to be able to market. They wanted to be able to put their label on. They wanted to be able to sell. Now, as we have seen, you know, AJ Styles has gone into the WWF and he's done really well now. Uh, Ricochet has gone in there and done really well now. By the way, real real quick pause here. You're going to hear me say WWF, WWE, back and forth. Sometimes when I'm talking, I just I forget what we're referring it to because I'm reading it in the book and it's the WWF. But as I'm presenting it to you, it's WWE. So just bear with me on that one. But so he's coming up with this new character, this Raven character. He's going to be more of a dark, sinister character. It's going to be a very emotional-based character. He's going to tap into himself as well and really start to put an injection into a lot of this. So realizing that 
going to WWF wouldn't work out. He did reconsider going back to WCW. Bill Watts was now gone. Eric Bischoff had since taken his spot. He thought maybe I could go back there, but he thought I don't know. Maybe there's still, maybe there's still some bad feelings there. He said, but I got to go somewhere. So Scotty decided to get a hold of Jim Cornette and Smoky Mountain Wrestling. So he gets a hold of Jim Cornette, and Jim says, "Yeah, we'll bring you in. We'll bring you in in September." Now Scotty waits around. September comes and goes. No phone call from Jim. October comes and goes. No call from Jim. So Scotty finally realized that at the end of the day, Jim wasn't genuinely sincere about bringing him in. So he's got this new character. He's excited about this new character. He finally feels at this point in time he's really come into his own. He's got plenty of experience as far as in-ring. Like I said, six, seven years, maybe eight years is, is kind of where he was at this point in time. Um, but he said, i got to do something. So he was still at the time living in Stanford, even though he quit WWF. He ended up moving not too far away to Philadelphia. And you're probably saying, oh, it makes sense. Philadelphia, ECW. Well, not exactly. Philadelphia at that time was the big indie scene. That's where it was. So like right now, Chicago is really huge in the indie scene. Well, Philly was that back in 1995. So he went and moved there and he did some indies. He did a lot of different shows. And he was just trying to find something that could, could get him in. Well, he heard of ECW, but he said, and I quote, I had always heard about this garbage wrestling, nothing but chairs, tables, and blood, he said. I guess that's what I get for judging a book by its cover. I finally watched the show, and I thought it was the best show I'd ever watched because of the storylines. The only wrestling that ever came close to what ECW was doing was what Bill Watts in UWF used to do. So when it comes to that, you know, he, he's looking at this ECW and he originally had these thoughts of, no, it's not for me, it's too violent, it's too gory. But then when he sat down and really started to appreciate the storylines, the writing, he appreciated what Paul Heyman was doing in the promotion, but he needed a way in. So obviously he called Diamond Dallas Page again and said, hey, um, is there any way you can help me out? Do you know anybody? I'm watching this ECW thing. So Paige um, had been associates with Paul Heyman and WCW, and Heyman owed Dallas a favor. So Dallas said, look, I'm going to call Paul. I'm going to get a hold of him. He owes me a favor. So Dallas calls Paige. Or, sorry, Dallas calls Heyman and says, hey, look, I got a guy who I think you should take a look at. And they start talking about him. Obviously, the name Scotty Flamingo came up. Obviously, you know, the name Johnny Polo came up. And Paige was trying to tell Heyman that it was different this time. And he had kind of changed his character. He was grungy. And that's kind of where the music was at that time. And he was more darker. And Paul said, that's fine. We'll, we'll, we'll bring him in. What was originally supposed to only be like a two-month run, he was going to bring him in because he was still, as we talked about, working on his project with Tommy Dreamer. So we thought, no, this would be good. I can bring this guy in. I can hook him up with Tommy. They can have 
uh, a series of matches, you know, and see where it goes. But really, we we don't have a whole lot of interest in this guy. So once again, Paul Heyman was judging a book by its cover just as much as Scotty was judging ECW by its cover. But you know what? Things change. So he ends up getting a phone call from Paul Heyman at 9 o'clock in the morning. Scotty mentions how he was all... Um, he had partied the night before pretty hard, and he uh, had a conversation with Paul, couldn't really remember a ton about the conversation, and the one thing he forgot was when he needed to show up for his first day at work at ECW. So he goes, oh my God, he goes, I can't call him back, I can't look like, you know, that I didn't pay attention on the phone call, this is my opportunity to display this new Raven character, what am I going to do? So he starts showing up immediately at the ECW arena and coming to the shows and going backstage. Well, Paul walks up to him and, and sees him for the first time. He says, dude, what are you doing here? And he goes, you know you don't start you know, until such and such date. And he goes, oh, I know. I just uh, I want to come and check things out. That was Scotty's way of finding out his, his start date, which actually is pretty smart here. So like I said, they had an agreement to come in here, work with, Tommy Dreamer. It was originally only supposed to be for about two months, and then that was it. It was, once again, trying to get Tommy Dreamer over because Tommy was one of Heyman's biggest projects. So they started their feud, and there is a vignette or like a promo video, whatever you want to call it, that's floating around on YouTube where it was the introduction of Raven into ECW, it was kind of interesting when I watched it because this is what aired prior to him coming into the promotion. And it was basically him wearing his Raven attire, which were his boots and his tattered off uh, jean shorts. And then he had the flannel tied around his waist and the leather jacket and then his hair all teased up and then the choker around his neck. So, And he's just walking around a neighborhood in the snow. And that's the whole video until it gets to the very end and the very I would say 10 to 15 seconds of the video that ends he talks about Tommy Dreamer and wanting to come after Tommy so that's the way they introduced him so the way the storyline would play out for this two-month run with Raven coming in to work with Paul's project Tommy so the way this whole storyline was going to shake out would be that Tommy and Raven both went to a summer camp. There was also a girl at this summer camp. We will leave her name uh, anonymous at this time, but it will make sense as we go along in our story. Tommy was the popular guy. He shunned this girl who was uh, maybe not as attractive, maybe overweight, whatever. Well, Raven never forgot about Tommy being the popular guy. This girl never forgot about how she had gotten shunned by Tommy, who she allegedly had a crush on. So that's basically kind of the, the back storyline. So Raven's back to get his revenge on a guy that was not so kind to him in summer camp. And this other girl, who uh, we will soon find out, is uh, back to um, get her revenge as well. So... Raven, as I mentioned before, had a lot of emotion that was based in this character, and it was about the turmoil in his real life. And he even said this, I don't want anyone to look up to me. And that's kind of how the relationship worked with him and uh, and Stevie Richards. So it was really interesting because when you look at, at the Raven character and you look at 
the way he was positioned in ECW. It was very much a loner, a guy on his own. Other people wanted to associate with him, yet he didn't want to be this, I don't even know, cult figure, but he did embody a cult figure. So, on the May 5th, 95 show that took place in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, it got about 1,200 people, and uh, it was actually better than uh, some ECW arena shows. Now, there was kind of an issue with security at this time because fans in ECW, as far as the Philadelphia crowd, often brought weapons, uh, chairs, frying pans, cookie sheets, toasters, as we saw at one point in time, a Nintendo VCR. I could go on, but I'll, I'll stop at that. But in this show in Fort Lauderdale, security, uh, I guess they weren't smartened up on the fact that that's the type of brand of wrestling that ECW was. So what they ended up doing was security ended up confiscating everything that people brought. And in the book, it talks about how there was this big wooden crate and they filled it up completely. There was only one or two wooden crates that they filled up completely and... Um, yeah, they weren't too thrilled about that. Well, another thing that the security was not thrilled about, which I guess they weren't completely in the loop about, was how Raven and Tommy Dreamer not only brawled in the ring, around the ring, but they also brawled into the audience. And the security was not really sure what to expect of this, if it was going to be something quick, something short, but they kept brawling. It got brutal, it got bloody, and security kind of had an issue uh, with that. And they basically went back and told Paul Heyman that uh, we're going to close the show if anybody else uh, does these kind of things, if anybody else brawls past the guardrails. So we move on to the next night. They move up to Tampa, and they drew uh, almost 740 fans. So they were were not as, I guess, crazy and rowdy as the uh, the ones the prior night. But the thing that ECW kind of put forward was this is who we are, this is what our product is, it is violent, it is extreme, it's not for everybody, and that actually came out to be one of their trademark phrases, um, but they actually, the fans booed, because uh, they weren't actually doing the stereotypical ECW things, and the wrestlers were actually wrestling. So, I can see the fans' perspective from that, but I can also understand that in different places in the country, you know, you may or may not be able to do what you typically do. And security basically said at some of these venues, I know what you are now, according to Paul, but we can't let you do what you're doing. There's too much of a liability factor. So that's the way it happened. So we kind of take a step away from um, a character that we talked about in uh, a prior chapter, and he kind of got a bad name from Paul Heyman. But... Something happened. Something happened pretty big. So back in Philadelphia, the decisiveness over Sabu's departure continued. Some fans still supported him, while others were ready to continue to dump on him. When the public enemy started using tables, which once again was an issue that Sabu had, that other people were using his gimmicks, when they put uh, Pitbull number two through a table and they started fighting even more, people started chanting, Fuck Sabu. And this was a chant that continued to uh, to emit through the crowd. So, once again, Sabu not around. Public Enemy is using the tables gimmick. People are using that as a reminder of 
how Pauli told them that Sabu had turned his back on them, which once again, depending on who you believe, may or may not be the situation. I don't personally believe it was the situation, but once again, like anything in history, you're going to have different people's opinions on it. So, Dreamer finally gets his one-on-one match against Raven, and I'm going to read exactly what uh, the excerpt from the book here is. It says, He seemed to have things on the verge of winning this match and shutting Raven up for good when Raven appeared to go after a woman in the audience. When Dreamer went to save the girl, she apparently sprayed him with mace, making it easy for Raven to go ahead and take advantage and then subsequently get the pinfall. What Raven would later explain was that this gorgeous woman in the crowd, remember how I teased earlier about this woman at summer camp? Her name is Beulah McGillicuddy, a girl both Raven and Dreamer both had known when they were kids. Beulah supposedly had been a fat girl and uh, had a crush on Dreamer, but now she aligned herself with Raven to get revenge. Uh, Beulah was actually uh, a character portrayed by Teresa Hayes. She actually had wrestling experience, and she worked briefly in the 1980s as Brian Pillman's sister for an angle in the Hearts Family promotion Stampede, which was up in Canada. So she definitely was an experienced performer. Uh, Raven met her in Florida shortly after he got into ECW. So how does Beulah and how does all this end up working out? So she's working in Canada. Raven just gets into ECW. Well, Raven was down, as we said before, in Florida when ECW was doing their shows. He says, I was on South Beach and I ran into pro baseball player Ron Gant. If you remember, Ron Gant was big on those uh, 1990s Braves championship teams. That Braves team was a juggernaut. And if you're not familiar with it, I definitely recommend looking that up. That team was equivalent to what the Patriots dynasty was. So anyway, they run into a baseball player, Ron Gant, and Teresa was with Ron. And so Ron introduced us to each other, and Teresa said she wanted to get back into the wrestling business. She had done a spread in Penthouse, and this is Raven. She sent me some pics. So I went to Paul Lee, and I showed the pics, and I said, we got to get her in the company. Paul then agreed, uh, but the idea was to put her with Raven. But Raven wasn't really crazy about that idea. This is Raven's quote. I always felt like Raven didn't need a valet. It didn't fit with my vision of the character as a dark loner. There's a whole psychology to valets, and a lot of guys today just don't get the girl over without taking away from themselves. However, after several conversations with Paul Lee, Raven came up with the idea for her to be an integral character in the storyline between Raven and Tommy, and then coming up with the idea of introducing her at the show, being the girl who attacked Tommy, and then et cetera, et cetera. So just kind of putting a pause on this, this was such an important feud in wrestling, and I feel like a lot of people don't look at this with the magnitude of, of what it was in the mid-90s. But the character of Raven is so good and it is so classic. A lot of people have said over the years that when you talk to Scott Levy, he has a great mind for wrestling, meaning he understands how to tell stories. And that completely makes sense. I mean, the man was hired by Vince McMahon to be an associate producer. He was on commentary with Vince before at the desk. He worked with Gorilla Monsoon. So 
he had a lot of experience working with a lot of talented individuals who definitely had a a positive effect on him. Plus, not to mention, he's really, really creative in general with coming up with how to put this together, how to put that together. So it doesn't really surprise me that he had a lot of input on not only how the character was going to be portrayed in ECW, but to, to really stand his ground and say, no, this is really what I want to do. So, and what working with Tommy was such a big deal because, you know, Tommy was one of those guys who was new, he was fresh, he was young, but the whole goal was to get Tommy over as as the hero, you know, and, and they did. They did that very, very well. Now, on the road to doing that, it got pretty bloody and pretty vicious with their feud, but we're going to take a pause on that real quick because we're going to introduce another character into our ECW storyline, Francine. Now, Francine came into the company, and in the storyline, she was Stevie Richards' girlfriend uh, until she found out about Beulah McGillicuddy, who Beulah was now in Raven's group. I guess you could kind of say she was a pseudo-member because she was with Stevie Richards. So this is kind of how things played out from there. Paul thought it would be a good idea to have a confrontation, altercation, whatever word you want to use to describe it, between Beulah and the new addition, Francine. So it was then announced that Stevie Richards was going to be the special guest referee in this match between the two. So we just kind of gave a little bit of an insight before we go on any further in the ECW storyline here about how Beulah came to be. So once again, just to recap, she had been in Stampede Wrestling. She had been trained there. Uh, She worked with the Hearts, took some time away, worked for Penthouse, was out of the business, wanted to find a way to get back in. She then ends up uh, meeting up with Scott Levy, who was Raven when they were down in Florida. He talks to Paul. Paul brings her in and sets up the storyline between he and Tommy to make it even more interesting. All right, so now you got the background on her. So Francine comes in here, but but who is Francine? So Francine um, actually had been training. So she says, I attended the ECW wrestling school in Philadelphia, she wrote. J.T. Smith was her trainer. I was the only woman, and I trained with four other guys. After about seven months there, I was booked on my first house show, and they kept just using me after that. So now you have a little bit of an insight on Francine. And we're going to go more in depth into the whole ECW wrestling school. Mikey and Jerry have both talked about the school. Mikey more so uh, because he obviously worked at the ECW wrestling school along with Taz and Bubba Ray Dudley, etc., etc. So we'll go more into that in depth. We'll probably dedicate an episode just on the ECW Wrestling School and who worked there and who was in charge. Now, I do know that if you go on the WWE Network, they do have a ECW, I don't want to say it's like a a round table, but it has different people and they talk about the different responsibilities at the school, who trained who, who took care of money, who took care of tickets and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, so you have the match, you have the feud between Tommy and Raven, and that's kind of how that went for a while. Obviously, we have Beulah McGillicuddy, who is there now. In interviews since uh, ECW has uh, gone out of business, Dreamer actually had mentioned before that he thought that he was the essence of the show. Uh, he believed he was positioned himself as the essence of the show. However, 
uh, people close to Paul Heyman never believed, uh, according to Heyman, that Tommy was actually the top guy. Uh, he always seemed to be number two. And once again, th this is up for debate. I mean, when you think of ECW, who do you think of as being the franchise guy? I mean, no pun intended. Some may say it is Tommy Dreamer when, when people think of ECW. So in my opinion, when I think of ECW, there's a lot of guys that I think of, but I definitely think of Tommy Dreamer. So, but the thing about this was though, for as many times as, you know, Tommy and Raven had fought and Raven had always come out victorious, it really wasn't about portraying Tommy as being the superior wrestler because, you know, Raven continued to beat him. But in Paul's eyes, and, and I believe also in Raven's eyes, the whole purpose of doing this angle was to have the audience connect with Dreamer, which once again, before Paul even brought Raven in, that was the whole goal was to get the audience to connect with Tommy Dreamer. And I think bringing Raven in really helped solidify that stance of, hey, we need to find a way to get this guy to be as much as a fan favorite as possible. And they wanted him to connect with the audience, so the audience would finally accept him. And I think bringing Raven into the picture, and even though Raven continued to beat him, it was that, it was that you know what, that never say die, that never quit, that really gave him the credibility with ECW fans. And as dark and as serious as Raven's character was uh, during his feud with Tommy Dreamer, behind the scenes, things started to change again. So Raven, being the creative guy, decided that he wanted to add some new members to his group. And uh, you will see that he added some new people and he changed the way things were being done. So for as dark as Raven was, the concept of the the Blue Meanie and Stevie Richards was the comic relief. So the Blue Meanie and Stevie Richards would come out and they would do parodies of all different kinds of wrestling acts. And the ECW crowd ate it up. And they were the Fabulous Freebirds and they came out and they did Kiss and they did all these kinds of acts and it really started to get over. And the Blue World Order, in, in, in my opinion, and I believe in a lot of people's opinions, is something that will forever live on when it comes to not only ECW, but in the minds of wrestling fans everywhere. The Blue World Order shirts are still being sold. Uh, I've gotten a chance to get to know Blue Meanie personally. Sensational dude. I mean, you cannot find a nicer guy. And I know that gets said a lot, you know, I can't find a nicer guy. But no, he's really a, a really good dude. And he really took the whole Blue World Order thing extremely, extremely seriously. And it got over. And people were scarfing up the shirts. And it was a great concept. So you had this hardcore aspect, the blood, the tables, the barbed wire, the fire. And then you had the Malinkos, the Guerreros, the Benoits. You had the, the, the real tactical wrestlers. And then obviously you had to have a little bit of comedic appeal to it. Once again, I mentioned this before, that was what Paul's whole goal of ECW was. It was a one-stop shop that really offered everything in wrestling that it would appeal to somebody. You know, no matter what kind of wrestling fan you are, there was something there that would work for you. So Raven's crew grew even bigger um, when he included one of the top stars from the 1980s. And his wild and crazy style would fit right in perfectly with Raven's flock. And that was a guy by the name of Terry Bam Bam Gordy. So 
For those of you who might not be really familiar with Terry Bam Bam Gordy, he was the bedrock of the fabulous Freebirds, uh, which was one of the most influential teams in wrestling history. Now, the Freebirds popularized the use of rock and roll music accompanying their themselves to the ring, and they were responsible for some of the biggest feuds in the decade. Gordy himself was recognized as one of the best big guys in wrestling, uh, obviously north of 300 pounds. So... After Gordy's run with the Freebirds had uh, pretty much ended, he went over and into Japan, and he started teaming up with Dr. Death Steve Williams in a new tag team, which was known as the Miracle Violence Connection. So, however, the Freebirds' hard-partying reputation was uh, no mere gimmick, meaning they definitely lived hard and partied hard. And by 1996, uh, two drug overdoses had left Bam Bam, just a shell of himself. But when he came into ECW at Hardcore Heaven 1996, he almost looked like he was the old Bam Bam again. Um, he was reignited. He was excited. He was ready to go, just like he was in the 1980s. So Raven had another member to his flock, and that was Bam Bam Terry Gordy. So as the Raven-Tommy Dreamer storyline kind of got put on the back burner for a while, Tommy started a feud with primetime Brian Lee. And Raven was in a feud with the Sandman for the ECW title. Now the Sandman himself, who'd gone from being a heel, now he's one of the most popular guys in the company, largely due to his entrance. And if you have not seen the Enter Sandman entrance into the ECW arena, you are quite possibly missing one of the greatest ring entrances ever. So it became a huge sing-along for all the fans in the ECW crowd to sing along to Metallica's Enter Sandman. And he would obviously pour beers down the throats of the different fans along ringside. He carried his Singapore cane along with him as well. And it was funny because it was such a spectacle that the opponents would mention that once Sandman's music hit, it would be a good four to five minutes before the match would even get started because he would milk the entire song. And rightfully so. Fans were into it. People were really into it. The entrance that the Sandman made in the ECW arena was, like I said before, if you haven't seen it, you need to go see it. It was just as important to the character as what he did between the ropes was. The Sandman-Raven feud grew to include uh, the youngest heel in wrestling history. So you're probably asking yourself, what the hell's going on here? Well, Raven, Sandman, Paul Heyman all came up with an idea much like what happened with the Beulah McGillicuddy, Tommy Dreamer, Raven Angle, where they injected a woman into the situation just to make things a little bit more intense, make things a little bit more personal. So what happened with this one was, leading up to their match for the ECW title, Raven entered the arena with Peaches, uh, which actually is Sandman's ex-wife. So he brought her to the ring, during their match at Hardcore Heaven, and uh, the Sandman in the corner just started to laugh because he thought, is this the best you can do to try to get under my skin? But that wasn't the end of Raven's tactics. When Raven ended up bringing out Tyler Fullington. So Tyler Fullington is actually the son of Sandman, and at the time he was only eight years old. 
And Tyler came into the ring and he called his father a drunk and said he was now worshiping Raven. Now, the emotional impact of this feud was unique because over the next few weeks, uh, it, it got very, very heated because, you know, ECW fans were rooting for the emotional reunion of father and son, and Raven and the Sandman beat each other up all over the arena. Now, when you look at storylines like this, so Raven brings in another woman and ends up being Sandman's ex-wife. Okay, that's kind of interesting, but then when you play the angle of you know, Sandman's kid coming into it and aligning himself with his ex-wife and then even more so with Raven and calling his father a drunk. This is some really compelling storylines because we would eventually see stuff like this happen in the WWE, uh, most notably when you had the Rey Mysterio, uh, Eddie Guerrero, Dominic uh, feud that was going on. I thought that was really interesting. So a lot of things that happened in ECW ended up happening elsewhere down the road. So once again, this is just another classic sign of how influential ECW was at that time. Um, some of ECW headliners say that the reason Paul Heyman never seemed to run out of ideas when it came to his top stars were that his top stars actually booked themselves. Raven said that there's a lot of twists and turns in his programs with Dreamer and the Sandman, but they were a collaboration between the wrestlers, and they also involved Paul Heyman into them towards the end. So the one thing that I did notice that talking to Mikey, he had mentioned to me was that if, if somebody had an idea and they would go to Paul, Paul was very good about allowing them to use their creative expression as long as they got the overall goal that Paul wanted. So however it takes to get there, as long as you get there, we're good with it. And that was a big reason why, and, and we've taken a pause on Sabu here for a second, but why Sabu never ended up going to the WWF at the time when he was originally offered a contract. And Sabu would go on to say, that was because I didn't feel from a creative perspective I would have been able to be myself. And from an artistic perspective, in a creative perspective, that was something that you would find very consistent with a lot of the performers in ECW. So later in the fall of uh, 1995, so once again, we're kind of going back and forth, back and forth. This was October 28th of 95, an ECW show. Uh, things kind of got a little crazy, and this was not expected to happen, which once again, I mean, how many times... Can you really say, oh, that was expected to happen in ECW? But the reality is a lot of that stuff was planned to happen with the performers. But as we know, a lot of times things go uh, awry, and uh, it kind of happened here. So so it was Cactus Jack who had Raven in his corner and Tommy Dreamer who had Terry Funk in his corner. So the match was Dreamer, had Funk in his corner, Cactus with Raven in his corner. So after the match, Terry Funk attacked Cactus Jack with a flaming branding iron, which was pretty much par for the course when it came to Terry Funk. However, Cactus retaliated, and he ended up throwing a chair that was lit on fire with the branding iron. He threw that at Terry Funk. Well, the chairs that were used that night were not just your typical steel folding chairs. They were steel chairs. However, they had that little cushion mat, uh, part where your butt sits on. Well, anyway, when the flaming branding iron came in contact with that, it 
lit on fire. So when Cactus threw it, it hit Terry Funk in his back and he got ignited in flames. And uh, yeah, things got pretty, pretty crazy. And actually a fan uh, along the ringside got injured. Well, the lights went out. And when they returned, Dreamer was crucified near the crow's nest, and Joey Styles was calling it. However, the darkness only lasted a few seconds because all of the chaos was ensuing inside the arena. All the fans were heading for the exits because of the fire and all the smoke that had filled the arena due to the branding iron and the chair. Well, it was a near riot situation that happened, and some fans actually did get hospitalized. Uh, Funk suffered second-degree burns on his arms and his back. Uh, so he actually uh, ended up being very, very upset, and all of his pissed-offness was directed directly at Mick Foley, who, for everyone who was at backstage, could hear everything that was going on. So George Thanos, who was a photographer at ringside, had this to say. He said, he was throwing stuff and just screaming at everyone. My bag of equipment was right next to his foot, but there was no way I was going to reach down and get it. After Funk received treatment for all of his burns, he did calm down and he reconciled with Cactus Jack, who they obviously had been friends for a very long time. But how crazy is that? So you have this match, and then Terry Funk has his branding iron, but the branding iron in the chair, the chair's on fire, and then it hits Terry Funk, and then you know the chair goes flying into the crowd. There's smoke everywhere. People get injured. They're heading for the exits. It's just one of those situations that you cannot, you couldn't write it. I mean, that was one of those things that just, it happened. And when I talked to Mikey, there are more than one occasion where it was a near riotous situation in an ECW show. And that was clearly just one of the many that would go down in ECW lore. So it was a while, but the very next show that was to take place in the ECW arena, Paul Heyman knew that there was something that he was going to have to do for the fans to make up for the, the riotous situation that happened the last time they were there. And, you know, Paul wanted to do something to make up for it. So he talked to Terry Funk. Terry agreed to come in for one last show, uh, challenging a singles match of ECW All-Stars in a tag team. It was going to be Funk and Dreamer versus Cactus, Jack, and Raven. Heyman also offered a gesture aimed at putting the fire incident behind him. He got into the ring and went to the microphone and said, listen, everybody, I owe you. And that's the one thing we've talked about before, that Paul was loyal to his audience. He wanted to give them what they wanted. He didn't want to screw the fans over. So... You know, Terry Funk, who was still healing from his burns, Terry agrees to come back. They agree to do a tag team match with all four participants to give a really, really good show. But then when Paul said, I have something uh, for you, I owe you, the lights went out. And guess what? Sabu was back. The man that had been exiled since his absence at the three-way dance in 1995 was warmly welcomed. Interestingly enough, all the people who had been hating on Sabu were very happy to see him back. He was reintroduced into the fold. Um, Raven would go on to say, I'm so proud of what I did for that company. My character became so hated that anyone who fought me would automatically become a face and anyone who helped me became an automatic heel. Now, let's look at it from this perspective. 
that's a pretty big thing to say because when it comes to somebody like Raven, who was such a polarizing character, anyone who fought him was a babyface, and anybody who helped him became a heel. He was a conduit of getting people over, and I think that that needs to be appreciated for what it really is because that's a big deal. Raven would go on to say, My first match with Dreamer, it was like I got 80% cheers and 20% booze. Uh, and he did too. Dreamer was still not the hardcore hero that obviously Paul was wanting him to be. Here was a guy doing everything he could do to be the babyface, and all people wanted to do was hate him. I think no matter how you look at the situation, Tommy Dreamer has a lot to credit, or he should credit Raven for a lot of his success that eventually came. A lot of the success that Tommy Dreamer had, he should credit to Sandman as well. There was a lot of people who really sacrificed themselves to make Tommy look the way he did. No, I'm not saying Tommy wasn't a good performer because Tommy was really, really good. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that they're the only reasons why Tommy succeeded and became really the face of ECW when it was all said and done. But they did a lot to help him get there. And I think when you look at wrestlers and you look at their impact in the business, what you really need to look at as well is... Not only, you know, did they win, did they lose, did they get cheered, did they get booed, but what did they do for their opponent, you know? What did they do? Look at it from the beginning of the feud, look at it to the end of the feud. Were they able to accomplish what they were looking to do? And here's a perfect example, a perfect example. Uh, I don't know how much current wrestling you, you may be watching, but when you take, and this is just my opinion, when you take the Bobby Lashley-Rusev feud, Rusev, when Lana uh, was a baby, when they were baby faces, they had Rusev Day, they had the chance, but he never really got over. He was always still that kind of that middle card guy. Well, now what they're doing right now is they're making Bobby and Lana look so trashy and so bad, and they're really boosting up Rusev because I believe they're going to be making Rusev one of the top faces of the company. I think that's really their ultimate goal here. So when you look at that and you start to understand and appreciate what the people that you are working with are doing for you, I think that in itself really puts things into perspective, especially when it comes to being a wrestling fan. How did people get to where they are? And you get that by working with equally talented and dedicated people. It's funny how many quotes we're using when it comes to Raven. Um, but, I mean, he really makes a lot of sense here. So in another quote in the book, he says, Stringing fans along to an emotional conclusion was a lesson that was lost on many modern stars. He goes on to say, that's what infuriates me about today's workers. They just go out and do a bunch of spots and none of them mean anything in terms of telling a story in a match. I mean, wow. I mean, think about it though. The things he's saying way back when are things that are so accurate to today. I mean, how many times have you watched a match? And yeah, they've done the different moves and it's been exciting, but it, it looks like acrobatics. I once tweeted recently, you know, sometimes there's so many of these high spots, it looks like Cirque du Soleil. And it's not really a wrestling match. You're not really telling a story. You're not trying to get people's emotions 
either riled up. You're not you're not trying to get someone to really root for somebody. It's just there is no defining line between good guy and bad guy. It's all this shades of gray, which in some ways that can work, but you have to have people you root for. You have to have the underdog. You have to have people that you just despise and you can't wait till they get their comeuppance. I think that's what made so many of these characters in ECW so not only likable but relatable. I mean, take Raven's character. I mean, he was the grunge gothic guy who was just the outsider who felt like he had been mistreated so much by the pretty boy popular Tommy Dreamer. And so many people can relate to that. I was the outcast or all oh, that guy. I know what you mean. He was a captain of the football team. I hated that prick. You can always relate to the Sandman, the guy who works 40, 50 hours a week with his hands. He uh, either was construction or whatever. He likes to drink a beer, smoke a cigarette, and he likes to, to fight. You can relate to that. You can relate to the Mikey Whipwreck character, the guy who goes out there who doesn't want to quit, but he continues to get beat up, and you see this continual rise, and you see this continual confidence that is built up inside him, and he eventually sees the ECW championship. There's so many of these stories that really made ECW successful because people felt like it was one of their own. They endeared themselves to these ECW characters and ECW endeared themselves to the fans. So I hope this chapter was was entertaining, insightful, and that you learned something. I mean, so we, we learned about the evolution of the Raven character. We learned about the feud between he and Tommy Dreamer. We learned about how Beulah McGillicuddy got involved in this. We learned about Stevie Richards. We learned a little bit about the Blue Meanie and how the Blue World Order kind of started. We learned about Francine. We learned about Sabu coming back and how things don't always go as planned with the near riotous situation that happened inside the ECW arena. And more than anything else, kind of going back to Raven, we learned a little bit about how Raven sees wrestling and what his opinions are, his views from a creative perspective, and all the obstacles that he went through. If you didn't know that he did all those things before he came to ECW, then um, I don't think you're really understanding the full breadth of what Scott Levy has contributed to this business. So awesome chapter loved it can't wait to keep going here so the next chapter is going to be chapter seven uh and it's known as extreme defection so it's going to be interesting what is going to happen in chapter seven you're going to have to stick around and find out more if you like what we are doing here on overbooked then hit us up on social media let us know that you're listening to the uh the commentary of the different chapters as we go through them. Let us know what your thoughts are. If you you liked that chapter, what did you learn that you didn't know before? Uh, maybe if you didn't buy the book and you're just listening to the show, yeah, I, I really thought that was really good, so I went out and I got the book. Let me know about that as well. If you have stories about being an ECW fan, share them with me as well. You can hit me up on social media. I am at Mike Freeland, M-I-K-E-F-R-E-L-A-N-D. And if you like what we're doing here, don't forget, we have another show called Front Row Material that stars Mikey Whipwreck and Jerry Lynn, two former ECW heavyweight champions, and their careers have spawned many, many years in many, many different promotions. They are good friends, and they are hilarious together. We are on the MLW Radio Network each and every Wednesday. All right, that's going to do it. Until we meet again for Chapter 7, I'm Mike Freeland. I'll see you later.